Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up, traders? Big thanks for being here. On the podcast this week, I got the chance to catch up with Alex. We will keep his surname private, but he goes by AT09 underscore trader on Twitter. Alex is a 22-year-old discretionary day trader who has seen really great results in the few years he's been grinding away at this. He trades small caps and he trades aggressively. As you'll soon hear, Alex is far from conservative. This conversation was recorded on the 16th of November after the close, right around the time when the madness in the shipping sector was unfolding. So we got talking about the ticker DRYS, how Alex racked up a $40,000 loss a day or two before our interview, although I should also mention he had his first $100,000 day shortly after too. We also spoke about how Alex got started, the types of trade scenarios that he looks for, areas that he's working on to improve, and also his venture into real estate where he flipped a foreclosure property for a tidy profit plus much more. Now, I'd like to remind you that nothing you hear on this episode, or for that matter, any episode, is to be treated as financial advice. Please remember, you are entirely responsible for your own trading decisions. And as this is the last episode before the 25th, I'd like to say, please have an awesome Christmas, enjoy time with your family and friends, and prepare yourself for a big year in 2017. Merry Christmas. Now let's go. Here's the conversation I had with Alex. Usually on this podcast, we don't talk specific about particular trades or certain events because it sort of tends to date things a little bit, but DRYS, the ticker for dry ships, this one we can't ignore. Yeah, it's all over everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. CNBC is even talking about it. Yeah, this is one for the history books. So, I mean, I'm really keen to get your take on it. How have you been trading it? When did this first come onto your radar? I mean, okay. So, basically, I first saw it, I think it was uh, that day. It was like very low volume. I think it went from 8 to maybe 16 or something like that. Slowly started to fade off. And then I really started to pay attention. I think it was the day after when it had a little bit of a week open and then pushed towards 18. And then from there, I think just it trapped everyone. Everyone got stuck. It was just weird, weird thing. Like I, I thought it was just going to be like a normal, you know, a short squeeze after a couple of days, you know, come back down, you know, nothing crazy. We've seen a million times, you know, all like these big traders that I speak to or I know of. They're all shorting, you know, they're very comfortable. It's like nothing crazy. And then out of the blue, it just, it rips faces off. It just blew my mind. I luckily did not have to borrow for it. So I'm sure I would have been one of those guys that got their ball squeezed too. So why did that happen? Like what was the driving force behind this? I mean, even the, to start off with eight to $16, that's, that's a pretty big move in itself. Like how did it, what was the driving force that led it to continue? Because, you know, just to put things in perspective for people who might be unfamiliar with this or who haven't seen the chart, 
uh, I think it was early November or even October, it was just trading at like, it was less than a dollar. It's a reverse split. It just keeps selling off and then reverse splitting. Right. And, you know, it went from under a dollar to over a hundred dollars uh, within like a matter of what, like a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Not even a couple of weeks. I think it was Friday to what's uh, today. Today's Wednesday. It hit 115 today, pre-market. Yeah. It's a ridiculous looking chart. What was the driving force? So what I think the driving force was, was uh, the short sell restriction, I think was a big part of it. So the float is already low. I think it's less than a few million shares, whatever it is. And the problem with SSR is that once that once like the uh, it goes high enough, the stock goes high enough, there really is no more sellers to push it down because they're not going to be selling on the bid. They're all comfortable. Everyone's fine. It's just going to be shorts putting it on the offer. As soon as the shorts are done, it's just going to keep ripping and ripping higher. And it just everyone. Uh, it's been a long time since we had one of those black swan squeezes. So a lot of shorts just felt really, really comfortable and. They just got destroyed. And I mean, like, I would have been one of them too. You know, if I had to borrow, I would have been smoked as well because we're all used to seeing these charts. We're all used to seeing these parabolic charts. And I guess just sometimes if you don't stick to your rules, it all it takes is one day to blow you up forever. It's a scary thought, honestly. So were you involved in trading this at all? I mean, you said right there you couldn't get the borrows for it, but were you trading the long side? Yeah, I couldn't get the borrow, but I was trading their uh, the sympathy plays. Like uh, I think it was EGLE was one of them. Uh, SINO was another one. TOPS was another one. So basically, the way these sympathy plays work is that they fuel off the main runner. So call DRYS the head of the snake, and everything else just falls in its path. So as soon as the head of the snake gets cut off, these stocks collapse with it. So my thesis was I couldn't get the borrows on DRYS. Why not short the sympathy plays? You know, DRYS is not going to last forever. It's going to fall down. So these stupid stocks should fall too. Okay, so these other stocks were up significantly as well? Yeah, I think they were up like 30 40%. This, is, this was on Friday, so even before the crazy squeeze started. As soon as the massive, massive squeeze from like, was it thirty dollars to sixty dollars to ninety dollars to a hundred dollars started? These things started to go ridiculous. For example, I was short uh, SINO. I think I had like a, a dollar ninety average or something like that. I managed to cover a few a dollar sixty, and then I started adding your two and your two thirty, and then I had I was forced to cover. I was losing too much money. Turns out the next day, trading at three pin market. Then goes to four, then goes to five, six, seven, and like it almost hit eight the same day. And then sold back down to five. And now today, uh, in after hours trading, it's above eight. It's at 860. So that could even go even higher. It just blows my mind that, you know, a couple hours ago or a couple of days ago, I was covering my short at $1.60 and I couldn't fill all the way. And now it's at $8. If I didn't stop out, you know, that'd be the end of my trading account. You know, it's just so scary to think that one or two days of just stupid trading or irresponsible trading, not sticking to your rules could destroy you. It's, it's, it's scary. It blows my mind. Yeah. I think there's a number of traders who have probably been hurt by this quite badly. So, so these other stocks, when you're talking about these sympathy plays, uh, these other stocks really have no reason to be up by the crazy amounts that they do other than the fact that they're in the similar sort of industry and sector as, um, in this case, DRYS. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So most of these stocks are even, they're like garbage. So they have to raise money. They have ATM warrants, everything. They're looking to raise as soon as possible. So my thesis on these sympathy plays is they're usually not going to run as hard or as fast or as high as the main one. So they seem a little safer to short. But when craziness like this happens, where DRYS hits 115, these things just lose their minds. They have low floats, some of them under 3 million shares, and it's crazy. For example, SINO has a float of, what is it, 2.8 million, and today it traded almost uh, 42 million shares. The float rate rotated almost 12 times, 13 times, and it just keeps going up and up. Shorts get trapped, and they have to keep covering to get out. It's just, it's crazy. It really is. 
So, I mean, a lot of these stocks are still up quite a bit at the time that we're recording this podcast. I mean, how do you anticipate this is going to play out from, from here on? So, I guess I want to backtrack a little bit. So, if these stocks, I guess, are going up, like, why would I short them? You know, why would I not buy them is what I guess a lot of people are talking about. Like, why not buy it? You have 200% upside rather than, you know, blowing your account or something. And the reason for that is, like, I'm, I'm like, uh, terrified. I'm terrified of buying because today... DRYS was halted. You know, what if the next shipper gets halted? And it just, I feel like I'll have that bad luck where the day I buy that stock, it's going to halt, you know? So I avoid it. Okay. Now, I saw you posted on Twitter. Uh, it was either yesterday or the day before. Um, again, before when we we're recording this. And we we're recording this. Uh, we we're recording this after the close, which on the 16th of November. 2016. You mentioned that you lost $40,000 the other day. Yeah. i got to ask you about that. What happened? Yeah. So I was short one of the sympathy plays, EGLE, and uh, I had some SINO as well. So EGLE, I had around uh, 35,000 shares at something in the sevens average. And when DRYS was starting to pull back near like 45, I was confident that the stock was just going to fail back to five or whatever, you know? Like I said, we've seen it a million times. Now, why is this time going to be different? And uh, it just blew my mind when DRYS went from 45 to 65, broke a new high of the day, and I just had to get out of this EGLE stock. I took my loss on that. I took my loss on SINO. And before I knew it, I was down 40 grand. It, was, it sucked. It was a terrible feeling. But looking back now, I would have been down 100 grand or 120 grand if I held like an idiot, you know? Yeah, so obviously I presume that you know you didn't anticipate to lose that much money going into this trade. Like you weren't prepared to risk that much money uh, in these trades or that day. You know what went wrong? What went wrong? I underestimated the staying power of DRYS. The stock is truly a black swan stock. It's it's like the KDIO, AQXP, all combined. You know, it just for a stock to go from five. To 115 in less than a week is just something that you don't see every day. So these stocks are acting the way they don't. So in my mind, I say, you know, I'm going to short it. I could be a little bit patient. Maybe I'll be down 10 grand. You know, it's not going to be really much of a big deal. But if you don't stick to your rules, if you don't respect the chart, then, you know, you could blow up in a day. It's really as easy as one bad day could screw you forever. It's very true. It's very true. Anyway, man, let's get into some more, uh, let, let's rewind a little bit and let's talk a bit about how you got into trading. I know you've got a unique story um, around this. So, I mean, tell us what led you into trading? How'd you get into it? Yeah. So basically it starts with my dad. So he came from Turkey to the States in the 1980s with his brother. So he didn't really speak any of the language. He didn't really have much money, but he was an entrepreneur at heart. So he started his own electronics business with my uncle, and it took off. In the 80s, electronics was hot. Everyone was buying left and right. Like He really made a name for himself, and the money started pouring in. He started making a lot of money. And I guess for as long as I can remember, uh, money was never an issue in our family. My dad had a lot. He worked really hard, and everything came really easy to him. So I think he was in the 2000s or whatever. He had a little extra money on the side and he said, you know, what do people with extra money do? Put it in the stock market. So he put his money in the stock market and I guess I was younger at the time. I didn't really understand it. But all I can remember is he just kept making money, making money. Uh, he would put in like some blue chip stocks, like nothing crazy. Just like, uh, I guess, watch it over a couple of days. You know, not really day trading. It just, I guess, investing. But long story short, 2008, 2008. Uh, nine, whatever it was, when uh, the whole economy went to shit, uh, people weren't buying things anymore from the electronics stores. And quickly, our lives changed. Uh, everything changed immediately. From having a lot of money, we went to having almost no money instantly. It was just a big, big change. I think I was, uh, I think, 15 or 16 at the time. And I didn't really understand it because I was so used to like everything coming easy to my dad. And it's... Uh, this is just a crazy story. So when I turned, I think it was uh, 16 or 17, I had like a pretty decent car. I bought like some rims for the car, 
nothing crazy. Uh, so I thought in my mind, you know, if my dad, uh, was making money in the stock market, you know, why can't I do the same? You know, we don't really have that much money anymore. I don't want to ask him for money. So I sold my, uh, wheels for, I think it was like $2,000 and I put it into like a TD account or an E-Trade account. And I just started like playing some stocks. I heard, I, I didn't find like much traction. I was mostly buying stocks and just losing. I was the guy buying at the top and it was just, it was a terrible time. So I guess I was looking on like the online forums and whatnot. And I found like a, a penny stocking guru or whatever. So I subbed to him for like a hundred bucks or whatever it was. And I said, you know, if this guy could do it, why can't I, you know, what's stopping me? I'm sure I'm smarter than like most people. So long story short, I followed his trades and I lost a bunch of money. So I said, screw it. Trading's not for me. Whatever. I'm done with it. So I got a job at Starbucks. I started working a little bit more and I said, you know, uh, I'm a smart kid. Maybe the first time it didn't work. Let me research a little bit more and let's see what happens. You know? So I took the money I made from Starbucks. I put it into a, well, I took the money from Starbucks. I bought a subscription for another chat room and I learned about what shorting was. And this concept blew my mind. I said, you know, if I'm buying at the top and the stock is going down, what if I just short where I was going to buy and, you know, make some money. So it just, it like, uh, there was a light bulb that went on in my head. So I found a broker that allows shorting the, uh, like an offshore broker. And I put what money I had in there. And I think the first short trade I ever had was, uh, I shorted 2000 shares of VGGL at like $4. And within like 10 or 15 minutes, the stock went from $4 to 350. And I was up a thousand dollars instantly. And just, I can't explain to you the euphoria I felt. It was just, I was on top of the world. I felt like a king. I made a thousand dollars like from one trade and I was hooked forever. I, I couldn't stop. Shorting became everything to me. <laughs> what a story, man. So just backtracking a little bit, when you first opened up that trading account, um, did you blow up that first trading account or did you just decide that you were losing too much and that it wasn't for you? Uh, the 2000 count, I blew it up. I blew it up after a couple of trades. It was, it was gone before I knew it. And was that the only account you've blown up uh, to date? I've blown up a lot. I, I can't even count. So after that VGGL trade, I started to pick up traction. And then before you know it, I was doing stupid stuff again. You know, I was shorting anything that was up. You know, I had no rules. I said, this stock is up 20%. Let me short it. What's going to happen? You know, and after... I started losing that money. I just kept, you know, I kept working at Starbucks. You know, I kept my job a little bit. I wasn't really making that much, but after blowing up like five or six accounts, these are small accounts, like say thousand dollars or whatever. After blowing that up enough times, I said, what would work on the short side? What are all these big traders in this chat room doing that I'm not doing? Like, what am I missing? What is like the, what is the golden road? What is the, like whatever it is, like what is the secret sauce of trading that I'm missing? And the thing is, I found, I guess the strategy that most people were using was they're shorting stocks that are trash that don't really uh, have any reason to be up. And long story short, that strategy worked a lot for me. And then I evolved that strategy into shorting the sympathy plays of running stocks. So Mostly when these stocks run, like the sectors run, whether it's forklifts, uh, Ebola, whatever it is, they usually have sympathy plays that other people are chasing or wanting to be that next big runner. Most of the time, I guess with smaller accounts, you don't really have the borrow for that big one. So I found that having the borrow for uh, these sympathy plays was not only cheaper, it was also a little bit easier, you know? So you said that you were, you know, you were trading accounts that were only a couple grand. And I think you even said maybe one was like a thousand dollars. Like that's, uh, that's pretty tough going. Like how were you, how were you managing to trade with such a small account and how did you get around the, the pattern day trader rule? Okay. So I use one of those offshore brokers that, uh, allows you to have like a $500 account minimum and they give you six times leverage. So let's say you have a thousand dollar account. They let you have $6,000 in buying power intraday. So that led to my blowing up happening even faster, you know, because I was playing on margin and just losers just start to add up and add up and add up until I said, screw it. I can't lose anymore. I'm sick of this. Screw Starbucks. I want a better life for myself. 
And now these these offshore brokers, that in itself, it sounds very dodgy. Is it dodgy? Are there any risks of using a broker like this? I mean, I think so. I mean, the whole concept is sketchy anyway, but without these offshore brokers, I wouldn't be where I am today. I didn't have enough money to pass the pattern day trader rule. I didn't have enough money to open up like three accounts. I just had to pray that this thing wasn't really a scam. You know, whenever I complained and yelled at them 10 times, I eventually got my money and the routing was terrible. Everything was terrible. Like, uh, it's just this pattern day trader was such a stupid thing to me. $25,000 to trade as much as you want. Like it just, I don't understand it. I think it's so stupid. So now that you're well above that, you're obviously not with an offshore broker any longer. Exactly. exactly. Okay, sure. Now I just want to put things into perspective here because when we, the start of this call, you know, I asked you about losing $40,000 uh, just the other day and here you are, you started out working at Starbucks. Like, just put that into <laughs> perspective for us. How much were you earning at Starbucks? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't even want to say it because it sounds so stupid, but <laughs> I was making, I think it was like $100 a week after taxes. I put $60 in my gas tank for my car, and then whatever I had left over, I would spend on my ex-girlfriend. So <laughs> I basically had nothing at the end of the week. <laughs> and how many hours were you working a week? I think I, cause I was still in school at the time. I was still in like high school and college or whatever. So I had to balance both. So I think I was working like 25 hours a week or 30 hours a week at Starbucks and the rest at school. Sorry, you're working 25 hours a week and making a hundred bucks. Yeah, it was nothing. I was getting paid minimum wage, like as little as it, uh, it was terrible. Just thinking now that money meant so much to me and losing $40,000 doesn't even phase me anymore. It just blows my mind. Man, that's so savage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so at what point did you feel comfortable? I mean, obviously there wasn't much risk in losing uh, and, and leaving Starbucks because you weren't making a whole lot of money. At what point did you make the decision to just go full into trading? So basically, again, it's going to sound funny, but my girlfriend broke up with me, so I was a little bit upset. So I said, you know, screw it. How am I going to spend money on this stupid girl when I could be you know, saving up some money and starting to trade. So after that moment, I guess I was a little bit upset. So I dove full into trading to get my mind off everything. I started researching. I started watching some DVDs. I started to do everything that I could just so I, I could stop thinking about this person. And it's worked out amazingly. Couldn't be happier. How long have you been trading for all up and how old are you right now? Okay. It's been, I think, two and a half years. It's going to be three years in February. And I'm 22 now. I just turned 22. That's incredible, man. Yeah, thanks. Good going. One of the things which is so crazy about your story is how quickly you've been able to pick this up and get a grasp of, you know, how to trade your way in the markets. I mean, how have you been able to pick up these concepts so quickly? I guess the best way to say it is I'm addicted to trading. Like this trading is on my mind 24-7. The first thing I do when I wake up is I check the quotes on some tickers that I'm watching. Midday, I'm just thinking, no matter what, it's always on my mind. Before I sleep, it's on my mind. What am I gonna do the next day? How am I gonna plan my trades? I'm out with my friends, I'm drinking, I'm thinking, okay, what's the next stock that's gonna be in play? How do I, how do I nail this stock? What do I have to do to become the best of the best in trading? It's just, it's become an obsession in my head. It's become like the only thing I think about. It might not be healthy, but it's, I love it so much that I can't stop. It's, it's, it literally is. It means everything to me. So obviously you've got a clear obsession for trading. Do you have an obsessive uh, personality like by nature? Like does this, you know, can you track this back to uh, things in your teenage years that you were like that just really obsessed about? So basically I guess like when I want to do something, I try to be the best at it whether it's trading, whether it's uh, in school, whether anything, no matter what, I try to be the best in anything that comes in my way. So with trading, it was a challenge because you could never be like, you could never master the market. The market is always going to be smarter than you. So it just blew my mind that like, no matter how hard I study, no matter what, the market is ever changing. So even we saw with all these shippers, they're blowing everyone's minds because these moves are crazy. They're absolutely nuts. And it's something that we're not used to. It's something that 
the market is doing, we have to get used to it eventually. This might be the new norm. What if these new shipping stocks are going to happen more often? What if the next sector is, who knows, like coal stocks or whatever, you know? We just always have to be adapting. We always have to be learning. And the moment we stop adapting is the moment we're done. So maybe walk us through your typical day. You know, you said that pretty much from the minute you're up to when you go to bed, you're just thinking and obsessing about trading. Walk us through a typical day. Yeah. So basically, I don't really get much sleep at night. I guess I have like a sleeping problem or whatever it is. So I'm usually up pretty early. So uh, let's say normally I'm up at like five in the morning. You know, I wake up, check the quotes, you know, go shower, think about trading. What am I going to do? And then I start checking the, uh, the pre-market gappers to see what's up on the day. I do a little bit of research before the market's open. I usually just hang out like really early, uh, between like 5 to 7 a.m. And then from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m., I'm always like on the screens watching how the stocks are acting, how they're trading pre-market. Like, is there like a, a trend that's forming? Is there some sort of news that came out? Like, what is moving these stocks? And by the time the open comes up, I usually have a plan set up. Sometimes I write it down on a piece of paper. Other times I just wing it. But mostly I find more success when I just write, my, write down my plan and stick to it. So, for example, let's say uh, tomorrow there's these shipper stocks are flying again. So I'll probably wake up in the morning, see how they're acting. Did they gap up? Did they gap down? Which stock am I most interested in? Why is that? And then form a plan. For example, I'm going to try to find the weakest shipper amongst all these stocks, the weakest, uh, the relative weakness. And then from there, I'm going to plan my trades according to the support and resistance of that stock and then get my orders ready. And then by the time the market opens, hopefully if they spike up hard enough, they'll hit my orders and we'll get the day going. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the years that you've been trading so far, what would you say have been the biggest challenges that you had to overcome? I think it's in my nature to be very stubborn. I am incredibly stubborn no matter what situation I'm in. And that really shows my training. You know, if I'm trading a stock with size uh, and it's going against me, I say, you know, screw it. I have the money to sustain. What if it goes, you know, let it keep going up higher. You know, I could eat, I could take some blood, you know, let them, let the stock kick me in the balls. You know, I'm stronger than that. And it just shows on situations like this, like DRYS. If you're short at, let's say $30, you have a thousand shares at $30 short and it goes to 40, you say, I'm down 10 grand, no big deal. You know, I could sustain that. What happens when it goes to a hundred and you're down 70 grand? It's just, it's crazy. So that's something I struggle with now. I have to learn to cut my losers faster. I usually cut them too late. I usually cut them when the pain is too big and I'm just like, I can't deal with this anymore. If I cut my losers earlier, I would probably be a millionaire by now. It's just, it's just crazy, but it's in my brain to be so stubborn. And if I could just fix that problem I have, I would be such a better trade on so many different levels. Have you made any effort, like any real conscious effort to try and change that? Like, is there anything you've tried? Yes. Yeah, so I've tried using stop losses and they've been helping, but 
I always feel like when I get stopped out, it's always at the top, you know? So what I've been practicing is setting a stop loss on half my position and then seeing what happens next. If the stock goes even higher, then I'll stop out the rest of my position by myself. If the stock goes lower after my stop, I'll just re-add it back half my position. So that way it's a little bit of a balance. You know, sometimes the, the, the stop will take over. Sometimes I'll take over depending on the situation. Right. So when you get into a trade, do you have in your mind like a predetermined amount that you're willing to risk on that trade? Not really. No, I never set a predetermined amount that I'm willing to lose. I usually just play it based on the chart, you know? So for example, EGLE, when I lost, was it $40,000? I said, you know, worst case scenario, the stock is going to go against me and I'm going to probably lose like 10 or 20 grand. Like it's not a big deal. Like I thought to myself, you know, whatever, this is a winner. This is a sure thing. I know it's going to drop. So I said, you know, it's not going to be really much of a big deal. But then when DRYS starts to reverse, I said, oh shit, maybe I'm fucked. Maybe I have to cover. Maybe I have to take my loss. So I didn't even look at the PL. I just had to get out of the chart as quick as possible. And then I saw the damage and I was like, shit, this sucks. But luckily the stock, this EGLE is up like three, four more dollars since I covered. So I guess I did the right thing for now. Right. So I just... I want to stay on this for a little longer. I don't want to skip over this. Um, you know, I, I think it's very interesting that you you approach things this way because it kind of goes against a lot of the, um, you know, conventional wisdom, if you want to call it that, that, that's floating around, is having either a stop loss or a predetermined price point or knowing what's going to cause you to get out of that trade. But you're not really like that. Yeah, I think that's going to cause too much emotional trading. If you say like my number is, let's say, for example, my maximum loss is $10,000 in trade. I mean, it is the smart thing to stop out at that certain point. But sometimes I guess it's I guess it's my nature too that I like to risk a little bit more. So I'm a very risky person. I like taking risks like in any situation. So when I see the stock going against me, sometimes depending on the situation, Instead of stopping, I'll just add a little bit more. And I'm not going to add to the point where I'm add, add, add till oblivion. I'm going to add where it makes sense. And if I'm wrong with that ad, I'll take it off 10 cents higher, 20 cents higher. But at least I tried, you know? So when does it make sense for you to add to a losing position? It depends. Like, so for example, let's say uh, this EGLE, it went from, I think the day I was short, I think it hit $8 and then start to sell back off. And then ramped a little bit again, it's like 750. So what I do, let's say I had like a 720 average, 730 average, whatever it was, and it was at $8. So when I saw DRYS reversing at that point, EGLE started reversing. So I said, this might be it, it's time to add. So I added there. The stock went down a little bit more, but then when the whole thesis of DRYS changed, when it reversed itself, that's when I knew, okay, this thesis isn't gonna sustain I have to get out no matter what. I don't know. I don't really know how to word this correctly, but a lot of what you're doing uh, in, in managing your trades once they're on is just trying to really gauge the emotion of the market and really trying to work out like, I guess, where, where price is going, like everyone is. But like you're managing the trade extends a lot further than from the point where you get into the market and have a predetermined stop, really tracking and trying to have a really good read on where the market's going. Yeah. So, I mean, if you say like, I'm going to, I'm going to play EGLE, I'm going to lose five grand. As soon as I lose five grand, I'm going to be out. The moment you lose five grand, you're going to be fucked up in the head a little bit. You're going to say, I lost, I suck, whatever. And that's going to cloud your judgment for when the reversal really does happen. So I'm okay with taking the loss if I have to at a certain point, but I'm not going to say I lost 40,000. I'm done for the day. I'm going to say, okay, I lost 40,000. You know, I suck. I was an idiot. This was avoidable. But when the stock reverses, I'm going to be right back in there hitting it with size. It's not going to be just to make the money back. It's going to be because I was wrong in the short term, but I have to re-attack. I have to re-hit the stock. I'm not going to sit in a corner and cry if I lose. You know, that's what people are going to do and they're never going to succeed. You have to overcome that loser, even if it's 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, whatever it is, you have to think past that and focus 
on being the best trader, being in the best trade that you could be. Okay. So this has probably become a little bit easier for you to do now that your account's a lot larger, but in those earlier days when you were trading accounts that were really just a few grand, were you much the same? Like how did you, how has your trading changed from when you were trading, let's say, let's just say a $5,000 account to what you're trading now, like a few hundred thousand dollars? Yeah. So when I was trading with a smaller account, my idea was do not short any bit of size until the reversal is confirmed. You know, I said, I have too little money to risk that if I'm shorting before the reversal, I'm asking to get wiped out. But now with a bigger account, I guess I have the, uh, the leeway to short a little bit early to throw out some feelers into parabolics or throw out some feelers into bigger, uh, bigger size charts and slowly add on the way down rather than let the stock collapse and then add. It's a little, it's a little different, but I mean, it's been working for me. In that same sort of period, was there any like defining moments or turning points, things that changed for when your, you know, your average P and L for the day went from perhaps maybe a few hundred dollars to, you know, a few thousand dollars. Was there any like big changes that you made to your trading that uh, started to ramp up the, the pace that you were growing your account? I mean, I increased size, but it was just consistent gains. Like what grew my $5,000 account and what grows my accounts now is very, very different. So what grew that $5,000 account was consistent gains every single day. No matter what, I would show up to the market. I could make $500. I could make $1,000. And then I'd cut my day off. I'd take a nap. I'd do whatever I had to do. And I was just growing my account every day, slowly but surely. Now, what I try to do is... I try to find those perfect opportunities, those 90% opportunities and trade those. So that doesn't mean trading every single day. That means maybe trading once a week or twice a week or like well, maybe like once every other week. I try not to trade every day. I try to trade only when my specific setup shows up. So for example, this week I've been trading every single day. I haven't left the computer because my setups are there. I keep telling everyone these shippers are crazy. They're going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity, both on the long side and the short side. So I can't afford to leave my computer for a second. These opportunities are so big that when the time comes, I have to hammer them lower. It's just, it's, it's crazy to me, honestly. Do you really think it is a once in a lifetime opportunity though? Or is that a little bit of FOMO? Sure. Sure. I guess it's not a once in a lifetime opportunity, but it's been, it's been kind of slow in the small cap world and seeing a stock go from five to 115 in less than a week is going to light up everything. Everything is going to be lit up for a few weeks. So after these shippers run, some, uh, let's say some chat rooms are going to try to pump the next big thing. And when that happens, they're not going to have as much fuel as this one did. So the fade is going to be even bigger. So I'm trying to like stick here, stick to the market, stay on my computers to try to anticipate those trades and short them on the way down. Now, I just want to pick up on something you said there. You said another chat room might try to pump a certain stock. Is that really the way that it works? You know what I mean? Like, does a chat room actually have the power to be able to really drive a stock price higher like that or lower even? It depends on the subscriber base. So let's say, let's say one chat room, whatever. Let's say they have a thousand members, right? And the main guy is buying 10,000 shares of an incredibly illiquid stock. Like this stock trades, let's say 500,000 shares a day, like on a regular day. This guy's buying 10,000, 20,000 shares. If a quarter of his chat room buy 1,000 shares, that's already like 250,000 shares, right? So it's just going to push the stock much higher. And then what happens when everyone starts to sell or when everyone, uh, when there's, no, when there's no real demand for the stock, it's going to go back down. So I live for these chat rooms. I am, I pray that they buy everything because usually it goes right back down instantly. I mean, we might have already covered this a little bit, but uh, let's just let's just go through it again and maybe a bit more in general terms. I think. So, what are the qualities of your ideal trade or your ideal setup scenario, whatever you want to call it? Okay, so. My ideal setup is, are these sympathy plays that are going on right now? So basically what 
I'm sure most people thought is when DRYS was halted, we everyone said that these stocks are toast. They're collapsing. They're nothing. That's it. The head of the snake is gone. Short these to oblivion. And when the stock, when DRYS halted, these stocks went down almost instantly. But to everyone's surprise, they held a bid. They started trapping shorts again. They went even higher and higher and higher. And they're still continuing to squeeze people. So now, since DRYS is halted, there are other shipper stocks that are still going up that are, quote unquote, the new index for shipper stocks. For example, SINO is the most powerful. It's at nearly eight or nine dollars, whatever it is right now. So tomorrow morning, depending on how SINO moves, it's going to fuel these other stocks higher. So tomorrow, what my plan is going to be is when SINO starts to reverse, I hit a different sympathy hard. I short it as hard as I can and hope that it's time for these to reverse. And if I'm wrong, if SINO starts to reverse, I'm just going to take my loss. I can't fight these shippers. They're too strong. But basically, my strategy is find the main stock that's running and short their sympathies when the main one starts to reverse. That's what I try to do. That's usually my best, best, most profitable setup. Okay. And when you say you're going to try and hit these hard, what does that mean? I'm going to short as much as I can. So let's say it's going to be 10,000, 20,000, 40, 50,000 shares. I'm going to try to short it and hold it for a few days because we all know that after the hype is done, they're going to go back to normal. They're going to go back to where they came from. Stocks that went from two to 10 are going to go back to five by the end of the week. And then they're going to go back down to two by the end of the month. So what I'm going to try to do is when the main stock starts to reverse, when the new head of the snake is cut off, I'm going to short sympathy plays and hold for as long as possible for as much downside as possible. Because we all know these stocks really, they have to raise money. They're toxic companies. They're, they're, uh, there's no real reason to be up rather than a sympathy play. So as soon as all these longs get stuck, it's, it's going to reverse. So I might have misheard you there, but did you say you might hold these for a few days or you'll, you'll hold them for definitely overnight? Yes, yes. So right now, the shippers have not reversed. So I'm not holding anything overnight yet. But when they do reverse, I plan on holding maybe two or three days because usually the bleeding doesn't stop in one day. They continue to bleed for a couple more days. So that's also something that I'm trying to work on. I'm usually quick to cover. I'm usually quick to take my money and run. But I've realized that for more successful traders that if you wait a few days, if you stick around for that quote unquote hard money that you just have to wait and be patient for, the payoff really is worth it. The money is really there for your taking. Because after a day or two, traders are just looking to the next stock that's moving. They forget about this stock and it just starts to sell off when no one's looking. Now, from the way you've been talking, it sounds as though you, you hold pretty large positions. How do you adjust your position size when you're holding a trade overnight? Is that something you do? It really does depend on the situation. So when a stock is below the VWAP level, that is my tell that Usually it's very weak on the day, selling off under VWAP, you know, closing near lows. I think to myself, you know, what reason do I have to cover? Like it's probably going to go lower the next day, but maybe I'll take off like a third of my position or half of my position just so that in that case where it goes a little bit higher, I've locked in some money and worst case scenario, I'll just reshort it tomorrow a little bit lower. Now, you know, throughout this episode, we've been talking a lot about the... Uh, shipping container stocks. But just more broadly speaking, how do you identify these sectors and industries that are starting to uh, gain momentum? Well, usually there's a lot of people on Twitter talking about it or, I mean, chat rooms are talking about it. But when they start to stick, when something like this sticks, like uh, before it was, uh, let's say, Ebola or uh, forklifts or whatever it was, when they start to have these sympathy plays in the similar sectors that every single person is talking about, every single person on Twitter, every single person in a chat room, they're only trading these stocks. That's when you know that there's something going on here. You know, this is when DRYS goes from five to 105 or 100, whatever it was, it's going to get people talking. It's going to get people, everyone's going to be curious. Everyone's going to have it on their screen. Everyone's going to be watching every tick of it. 
It's just the more eyes that are on it, the crazier everything could get. And what would you say is your ratio of trades on the long side compared to the short side? <laughs> it's pretty pathetic, but it's usually 99% short and 1% long. And the only time I long is usually when I lose in a short. Let's say, for example, it was a, I think it was CANF like a while back, a few months back, whatever it was. I ended up losing $20,000 on the short. And I said, okay, the short isn't working. The stock looks like it's going to go higher. So let me buy it. You know, let me reverse my bias. Let me reverse my position and just buy the stock. I ended up buying the stock with a bunch of size. I ended up selling for, I think it was a $50,000 win. So it ended up being a $30,000 win on the day after the $20,000 loss. So usually when I long, it's because my short position didn't work out. I see the chart is going to reverse. So I reverse my bias. Okay. <laughs> now these are not small numbers that we're talking about. Like, you know, you're 22 years old. You make me feel old. No. <laughs> <laughs> what do your friends and family think of your trading efforts and the amount of success that you've seen so far? Basically, my friends really have no idea how much money I'm making. They just know that I trade stocks and that I'm doing well for myself. They have no clue about the numbers. If I tell them, they'll, they just won't understand. It'll blow their minds. Like They'll say, I'm crazy. I'm an idiot. Like What am I doing? You're risking too much. And I say, you know, I'm 22. This is the time to risk. You know, I really have nothing to lose. You know, I have no bills. I have no, I have no mortgage. You know, I live with my dad. Like it's, uh, it's, I think it's, that's one of my benefits too. I don't really have to think about bills. I don't have to think about where I'm going to put my money. Like, what am I going to do? If I have a good month or a good week, I'll wire out some money and keep it in my bank account, save it for like a rainy day. And that's about it. I don't really spend that much money out I don't have. I really don't have much of a reason to spend except going out on the weekends with my friends. So why do you why do you not share this sort of thing with your friends? I don't think they'll understand it. They'll. Uh, I don't know. I feel like maybe it might be a little bit of showing off, and I just don't think they'll they'll really get it. They know that I trade stocks. They know that I short stocks, but I don't really get into like numbers too much, unless I'm talking to someone from the trading community. Then I'm like an open book. I tell them everything. No matter what, send me a question about my numbers and I'll tell you because they'll understand. They'll know what I'm going through. My friends really, uh, they don't know the stock market, so they wouldn't understand much of anything. Sure. And what do most of your friends do? Uh, one of my friends does real estate and jewelry. The other friend owns a hardware store. Another one is uh, doing pre-med. He's going to be like a surgeon. The other one's going to be a physical therapist. So... Uh, it's, I guess they're eventually all going to be doing well for themselves. So, No, that's really cool, man. Outside of trading, I want to talk to you about this. You know, I think it was earlier this year in 2016, uh, or maybe it was 2015. Um, anyway, doesn't really matter too much. Uh, you renovated a house and flipped it. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, why did you decide to do this? Yeah, so I think it was, uh, I think 2015, the uh, Las Vegas Conference Traders for a Cause, uh, I met a guy, uh, Louis, uh, Monaco trader on Twitter, and he made most of his fortune from not trading, but from real estate. So he trades just cause he loves it, but most of his money is from real estate or venture capital or whatever else he does. So we met up at Vegas. We talked a little bit by the pool and he said, you know, what are you doing? Like, what is your, what is your long-term plan? You know? And I said, you know, I have some money in the bank. It's just really chill on there. It's not really doing much. And he's like, have you ever thought of real estate? And I'm like, you know, like in the back of my head, I thought about it, but it sounds like a lot of work. Maybe it's not for me. And he's, he just gave me some pointers, some tips. He mentioned his story about how he started in real estate. And I guess uh, there was like a little, he planted the seed in my head. He said, you know, you could do it. You know, you're not a dumb kid. You're pretty smart. You know, a lot of people could do it. It's not a problem. So I think... The conference was in, uh, let's say, October or November. Uh, the market started slowing down in November to December in uh, 2015. So I said, screw it. Why not get into real estate? What do I have to lose? You know, I'm going to learn a lot. It's going to be a cool experience. The market's slow. Uh, so I guess I started doing research about what what is like a, a potential good property to buy and flip and whatever. So I ended up coming up upon like foreclosure properties and 
I started looking at a bunch of them and I eventually found one that I enjoyed like that. I said, this one has potential. You know, I see the vision in this house. So long story short, I ended up buying the house and I guess that was the easiest part of it, buying the house. And then I had to think like, how the hell am I going to do this? I have to hire a guy to do it. I have to hire a contractor, a plumber, an electrician, uh, some guy to do the masonry at the front of the house, a roofing guy. And it, I was, it was really overwhelming because it's like, it's like trading for the first time. You know, you really have no clue what you're doing. You could press a couple buttons. Maybe you'll be lucky, but really like you have no clue. So I said, you know, what, what the hell am I going to do? Like, uh, so I started interviewing what it's funny cause I started parking my car outside a home Depot at like seven in the morning and calling contractors from their vans, like from the numbers I saw in their vans and just saying, Hey, I have a house in this area. Do you mind if you could come in and maybe give me an estimate on what the work would cost? So I called, I think it was like 30 people and they all came in. They gave me like varying uh, quotes from like $20,000, like $70,000, to like fix the house. And you can't ever choose like the cheapest guy. Cause you don't know what kind of work they'll do. You can't choose the most expensive guy. Cause it's not going to fit your budget. So, uh, I was a little bit frustrated. So I went out to drink with my friends and I guess I got a little drunk and started telling them my problems. And one of my friends, uh, he actually owns a hardware store. So he deals with contractors every single day. They come in to buy paint. They come in to buy like anything. So I said, you know, if you find me a good contractor, I'll buy all my, all my materials from your hardware store. And he's like, done deal. So literally he found me a guy. He was one of the cheaper guys. Uh, my friend vouched for him and I said, all right, let's do this guy. Let's use this guy. And long story short, he had a, a couple of friends that were electricians and plumbers and whatnot. So I guess it all worked out, but yeah. So the work started and he would just call me and he'd say, I need this, this, and this. And I'm like, all right. And I would go to the Home Depot or whatever it was and just find the materials. Like I had to choose the hardwood floors, the paint, the uh, kitchen materials, everything. And this is all like my first time doing anything. So I had to like, I basically winged everything. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I went to Home Depot. I uh, went to all these like tile specialty stores, like a kitchen store, whatever it was. And I started picking things out that you know, I would like in a house. So I picked dark wood floors. I picked the paint color. I picked the kitchen with granite, uh, countertops. And I guess before I knew it, uh, everything started to come together. I mean, there were a bunch of problems like in between like contractor nickel and diming for like stupid things or like stupid problems coming up. But as annoying as they were, they weren't that hard to overcome. It just took some common sense and like some, uh, negotiation to fix all these problems. And the whole process, uh, from buying the house to, uh, selling the house was about, I think four months. And then like, it was like another two or three months of like attorney review, uh, making sure the other, uh, the buyers could get a mortgage and all this stuff. And it was really, uh, an interesting experience. I learned a lot. I learned about how uh, crooked these contractors could be. I learned how important like my friendships could be with my friends. You know, we help each other and overall, like the whole experience was cool. But in the back of my head, I was still always thinking like, I miss trading, you know, like when I was doing this house project, I wasn't trading that much. I was trading once a month and like, just so I could get like my addiction settled. Like there really wasn't much plays or whatever it was. And I was just thinking like, oh, you know, this real estate thing is cool, but trading really is where my heart is. Like it's still what I'm thinking about. Like, so when the house got sold, I started trading again. I had more time to trade again. And I guess the timing was right. Everything was right. And all these stupid stocks, like these sympathy stocks or these low flow plays were back again. And no hesitation. I was back in my element. I, there was no, uh, it was like riding a bike. I knew exactly what I was doing. And it turned out to be one of my most profitable months of the entire year. I did really well the first month I came back. And since then, it's just trading has been on my mind 24 seven. Right. So do you have any plans of doing, you know, another venture into real estate? So like I said, my contractor was nickel and diming me for everything. And it was just so frustrating and annoying. Like uh, by the end of it, I was just so sick of them. So, I mean, I think a lot of this whole real estate thing depends on your team. It depends on who you're working with. Could, are they people you could trust? Are they honest people? Are they 
people that you know aren't there to screw you. And my guy, as much as my friend vouched for him, he was there to screw me a little bit, you know. He's there to make his money, whatever it was. And from that that guy, just that one guy discouraged me from doing this whole thing again. But if I found the right team, honestly, I'd be I'd be happy to do it over again. It was a really cool experience. I loved the feeling of turning a garbage house. There were holes in there that were smelled like shit. It was terrible in there. And I'm glad like I turned it into something that someone could live in, you know. They're going to like start a family in there and it's just all from like a stupid garbage property that if they saw before they would never think about buying it. Yeah, so if you did do it again or, or when you do it again, you know, obviously the team is a big one. Like you, you'd make sure you had a better team or a, a team that you click with. Is there anything else you would have done differently? Like how did you go budget-wise? I know it's very easy to go over budget when you're renovating a house or, you know, and picking the wrong house. Like it's very easy to lose money in real estate, you know, just as easy as it is in trading, I think, to, to many to a certain level. Is there anything else you would have done differently? So the area that I bought the house in obviously wasn't like the best area possible because it was very, very cheap. So the way I did the house is basically everything I loved, everything I thought would look cool. But all those things like take a lot of money, like they cost a lot of money. So what I should have done differently is nothing about what I want. I had to think about what buyers in the area want. And that would have saved me a lot more money, you know, instead of using granite countertops or decent like appliances i can go with the cheapest appliances and the cheapest countertops and the house would still sell you know so i guess it's i was doing it for the first time i didn't really know what i was doing but now that i know a little bit better i know what it takes to like uh flip a house profitably it depends on the area it depends on uh like the kitchens the bathrooms or whatever and i just learned that i was cheaping out on the bathrooms a little bit and I know now that if I wasn't cheaping out on the bathrooms, the house would sell a little bit better. I was like garbage. The bathrooms I thought were garbage, but uh, I don't know. I mean, the whole, I made some money on the house, you know, for my first project, I made some money, you know, I'm happy about that. I was ready to break even or even lose a little bit of money just so I could get that knowledge. But I'm glad everything really worked out. Yeah. Oh, that's good, man. That's good. And I think you went into it with the right attitude as well. I mean, you know, learn before you earn in some ways. So no, good on you, man. That's awesome. Anyway, Alex, let's, uh, let's leave it at that. Is there anything else you want to add? Anything you want to share with listeners, uh, before we call this a wrap? Uh, I guess the most important thing is that when you're trying to grow a small account, always focus on consistency, like find a setup that you're really, really good at a setup that you know, you'll win at and trade that you have no reason to trade like a, something like Facebook. If it's moving on earnings, just so you get a rush or whatever, find something that you're good at, find consistent profits and your account will grow really fast. I couldn't believe how fast my account grew when I was being consistent trading every day, trading setups that were there for me. It's just the little things add up. It might take time, but trust me, it adds up faster than you'll imagine. So where's the best place that listeners can go to find out more about you? I guess my Twitter or my blog, they're both on my Twitter. I guess my Twitter is uh, ATO9 underscore trader and my blog is ATO9trader.blogspot.com. So, I mean, I have like some story about my real estate thing there and I post on Twitter pretty regularly about some trades I'm in or some thoughts. So, that's about it. Excellent, man. And can you just repeat your Twitter handle one more time in case someone missed that? It's AT09 underscore trader. Okay, good stuff. Alex, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, man. It's been a blast to speak with you. Thanks very much, man. Definitely, man. Thanks for the opportunity. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Oh,